Hi, and welcome to another episode of The Abnormal Psychologist, hosted by yours truly, Dr. Colby Taylor. And today we're going to discuss a very prevalent diagnosis. We're going to discuss ADHD. And notice I said ADHD, not ADD. We'll talk about why there's no such thing as ADD in this episode. We'll also discuss the three subtypes of ADHD, or presentations as we call them, whether medication uh, used to treat ADHD stunts growth, and whether eating too much sugar leads to ADHD. So this is going to be an exciting episode with lots to cover, so let's dive in. And I wanted to kick this episode off by talking about the history of ADHD. And the Germans had a good historical grasp of ADHD. One of the earliest known references to what we'd call ADHD today was in 1775 in Germany, in a medical textbook by Melchior Adam Vickard. And Vickard, like many people today, unfortunately blamed ADHD on parenting. Um, Unfortunately, I've talked to a lot of people who think that ADHD is due to parenting, especially indulgent parenting. Also, I've talked with a lot of parents who don't think ADHD is real, particularly dads. And I've had a lot of dads say, ADHD isn't real. Uh, I acted just like Junior when I was his age. He's just all boy, whatever all boy means. Anyways, Vickard's recommended treatment for ADHD was horseback riding, so an early form of equine therapy. And we can talk about equine therapy or hippotherapy in a future episode if there's enough interest. Um, Vickard also recommended drinking sour milk. Yikes. And also exercise. And maybe there's something to exercise, you know, sort of getting the wiggles out. So Vickard was in the 18th century. We also had a 19th century description of ADHD from Germany. And this one is a literary reference by Heinrich Hoffmann. And it's called Little Johnny Look in the Air. And here's the translation. As he trudged along to school, it was always Johnny's rule to be looking at the sky and the clouds that floated by. But what just before him lay in his way, Johnny never thought about. So that everyone cried out, look at little Johnny there, little Johnny head in the air. Um, So little Johnny was sort of a 19th century German space cadet. Anyways, in the 20th century, ADHD has gone by many different names. In the early 1900s, it was known as minimal brain dysfunction. And that doesn't sound too pleasant. Uh, In the DSM-2, it was known as hyperkinetic reaction of childhood. And I like this one sort of because hyperkinetic kind of captures the hyperactive energy associated with ADHD. It sounds like a physics term or something. And then, of course, uh, the childhood um, moniker to it makes it clear that it's a neurodevelopmental delay. Um, In the DSM-3, it became known as attention deficit disorder or ADD. And this is where you get ADD from. But ADD hasn't technically existed since the DSM-3. Because in the DSM-4 and DSM-5, it got its current uh, name of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And technically, it's attention dash deficit slash hyperactivity disorder. Um, Anyways, Uh, so there are three defining features to ADHD, sort of picturing it like a shamrock or three-leaf clover. We have hyperactivity, inattention, and impulsivity. Hyperactivity is excessive motor activity. And inattention is having difficulty remaining focused. And impulsivity is taking hasty actions without forethought. The diagnosis of ADHD is broken down into three different subtypes based on those defining features of ADHD. uh, Hyperactivity, inattention, and impulsivity, and how they present themselves. And the three subtypes, which we technically call presentations, are predominantly inattentive presentation, predominantly hyperactive slash impulsive presentation, 
and combine presentation. Uh, let me walk you through each of these presentations. Uh, we'll start with predominantly inattentive presentation. And this presentation is characterized by making careless mistakes in school or work, having difficulty remaining focused during your job or say during a college lecture or podcast, uh, having your mind wander, being easily distracted, starting tasks without finishing them, procrastinating, losing or misplacing things like your wallet, your keys, or your homework, and forgetfulness, like forgetting to pay your bills, to do your homework, or to keep appointments. And this predominantly inattentive presentation is sometimes affectionately called the space cadet presentation, right? You space out, you daydream, uh, you're scatterbrained. And it's the one presentation of ADHD that's going to be more prevalent in females. Uh, and it's underdiagnosed. And this is probably because people um, with inattentiveness don't usually present with the behavior difficulties in school that you'll see in the other presentations. Uh, they might be looking out of the window at a squirrel or at clouds, but they aren't the kids that get the teacher's attention. They aren't the ones standing on their desks or constantly talking. So these kids can slip through the cracks. Um, this predominantly inattentive presentation, since it often lacks hyperactivity and is more prevalent in females, has been argued by some to be a separate disorder. And there's been some argument to bring the old ADD diagnosis back, but as a separate one uh, from the other presentations of ADHD. ADD is sort of a standalone diagnosis without the H. Uh, there's also been some movement to create a separate disorder called sluggish cognitive tempo disorder. And I don't know about that name. Sluggish doesn't really sound good. Um, I like the name maybe concentration deficit disorder better. Uh, there's also been some argument to keep it included as ADHD, that the hyperactivity, rather than being excessive motor activity, is excessive cognitive activity. And this is why the mind wanders and is easily distracted, that it's overactivity of the mind, uh, not sluggish cognitive tempo, that leads to predominantly inattentive presentation. So that's the predominantly inattentive presentation. We also have predominantly hyperactive slash impulsive presentation. And this presentation is characterized by fidgeting, squirming, leaving your seat, running and climbing around, playing noisily, acting as if constantly driven by a motor. And this is a funny one because that phrase, acts as if being driven by a motor, is in like three different assessments of ADHD. Uh, it's also characterized by excessive talking, blurting out answers, having difficulty waiting your turn, and interrupting. Uh, if you spend any time in an elementary school classroom, uh, you'll see some of these kids. Uh, this presentation is more common in boys, and it's more commonly diagnosed as these are kids that are exhibiting behaviors that teachers can identify and that teachers also don't like. Um, these kids are also more likely to suffer broken bones and other injuries and rough and tumble play on the playground. Uh, then you have the combined presentation that exhibits symptoms of inattention, hyperactivity, and impulsivity. All right, since ADHD is a neurodevelopmental disorder, we have to be able to trace symptoms back to childhood. This doesn't mean you can't be diagnosed as an adult. Uh, we diagnose college students and adults with ADHD all the time. But we have to be able to trace that you struggle to some degree with your inattention, hyperactivity, and impulsivity in childhood. You just might have been able to cope with it better. Uh, and now that you're an adult, you have more stress and things are sort of falling apart. So specifically, we have to trace symptoms back to before the age of 12. It used to be before the age of seven, but a lot of people can remember before the age of seven as well. Uh, before, and you know, you can probably remember some before the age of 12 better than before the age of seven. So the DSM-5 pushed the age back. Uh, there are also lots of different ways that psychologists can assess ADHD. 
Uh, psychologists need to show in their evaluation that ADHD exists in multiple settings. It doesn't just exist in school and then magically disappears at home. Uh, the nature of a neurodevelopmental disorder is that it's pervasive. So ideally, we have assessment in multiple settings and using multiple methods. So in multiple settings, the psychologist might get permission to visit the child's school, to observe the child, and possibly count how often the child is out of their seat or how often they fidget compared to their classmates. Uh, they might interview the child's teacher. They might also give the child's teacher a questionnaire or survey about the child's symptoms. And then they'll want to assess at home. Uh, if it's a younger child, they might do this through interviewing the parent and through also giving the parent questionnaires or rating scales. Uh, the Connors and the Basque are different rating scales that are commonly given. If the child is old enough, you can interview them and give them self-report rating scales. Um, the psychologist can also contribute based on what he or she sees while they're working with the child. Uh, so information in multiple settings and from multiple sources is ideal. Some psychologists and psychiatrists give like computerized tests of sustained attention or continuous performance tasks. Uh, neuropsychologists are really big into this. Uh, lots of parents like this because it seems to directly assess symptoms of ADHD rather than filtering them through, you know, parent, teacher, or other informant reports. However, the validity of these assessments is questioned by a lot of mental health experts. Um, so in assessing ADHD, a lot of times I'll have a parent tell me that junior can't have ADHD because at home they can sit still for like seven hours in front of the television or can play on their iPad or Xbox pretty much all day to the point that the parent has to remind the child to go to the bathroom. And this can actually be a symptom of ADHD. And we call it hyperattentiveness or hyperfocus. With an iPad or Xbox or TV, stimulation is coming fast and furious. It's engrossing, it's rewarding. You're sucked into this fast-paced stimulation and you can block out the world around you. But when you're doing a non-preferred, slower-paced activity like reading or sitting in class, that's when the distractibility comes out. ADHD can also be associated with low frustration tolerance. With low frustration tolerance, you may become more easily upset when engaged in a non-preferred activity. So kids with ADHD might be more prone to tantruming or to behavioral outbursts. In adolescence and adulthood, ADHD is associated with increased risk of suicide. And I think a lot of this increased risk comes from the impulsivity piece of ADHD. Some uh, risk factors of ADHD are low birth weight, uh, alcohol or nicotine exposure in utero, and encephalitis when young. Encephalitis is swelling or inflammation of the brain. What aren't are not causes of ADHD, and what many people think are causes are eating too much sugar or watching too much television. And here's the statement uh, from the CDC. Uh, and the CDC statement is, research does not support the popularly held views that ADHD is caused by eating too much sugar, watching too much television, parenting, or social and environmental factors such as poverty or family chaos. Of course, many things, including these, might make symptoms worse, especially in certain people. But the evidence is not strong enough to conclude that they are the main causes of ADHD. So go out and eat your Halloween candy if you, if you want. Um, the prevalence of ADHD is about 5% in children and 2% in adults. It's twice as prevalent in males than in females, with the exception of that predominantly inattentive presentation we talked about earlier, which is more prevalent in females. Uh, there's also a higher prevalence in Caucasian children, but there's some convincing arguments that this might be due to better identification in this population. 
Um, in adulthood, in addition to that increased risk of suicide I just talked about, ADHD is associated with more traffic violations, a greater risk of obesity, and less educational attainment. All right, let's transition to talking about treatments of ADHD. One treatment might involve behavioral therapy. This might involve using rewards and punishments with the child. Let's say you have a child that is always out of his seat. You sort of try to scale the child up to staying in a seat for a little longer every day. The first day, he might only be able to stay in a seat for like 10 seconds at a time. And you reward him for every second he can stay in a seat. Maybe you give him a sticker or something. And you gradually try to scale him up to sitting in a seat for a minute and then five minutes. Uh, there's also parent training where you can teach parents different strategies to redirect and to work with their children with ADHD. Uh, PCIT, parent-child interaction therapy, is one therapy that might work for this. Uh, but with ADHD, research shows the most effective treatment is psychopharmaceutical, and specifically psychostimulant medication, which is effective for about 80% of school-aged children with ADHD. The most popular psychostimulant medications contain methylphenidate, like Ritalin, or amphetamine, like Adderall or Vyvanse. And we don't know exactly how or why they work. Most hypotheses think they affect levels of dopamine in the brain. Um, there's also non-stimulant medications like Stratera and Intuiv uh, that have some promising effectiveness data. Uh, stimulant medication might be contraindicated. Um, it shouldn't be used in children with tick disorders like Tourette's as it can increase ticks. Um, I've seen this a few times in practice. Now, you might ask, how would a stimulant medication decrease hyperactivity? Shouldn't it increase hyperactivity? Like, when I drink coffee, which is a stimulant, I get jittery and hyperactive. And this isn't necessarily the case. If we conceptualize ADHD as having a sort of cognitive sluggishness, then the stimulants help you to lock in, to focus on the task at hand. Now, one myth I hear often about psychostimulant medications is that you know someone has ADHD if the medications work for them, and they should have the opposite effect in people without ADHD. Uh, this is called the paradoxical stimulant effect, and it's not true. Most people, whether you have ADHD or don't have ADHD, experience increased focus when taking a psychostimulant medication. Uh, this is why medications like Adderall are so often abused by college students. A lot of campuses, there's a black market for Adderall. It's sort of an academic performance-enhancing drug. Um, I'm always amazed at how many students tell me that they borrow their roommates' ADHD meds. And this is dangerous. Taking ADHD meds without consultation from a doctor can leave you open to cardiac events and other bad things. So don't do it. Uh, another thing I hear pretty often is that ADHD medications stunt kids' growth. And there have been a few studies that have shown some growth suppression in kids with uh, psychostimulant medications, but there's also been studies that have shown no growth suppression. So there's no clear-cut evidence that psychostimulant medications stunt growth. Uh, you might also ask, is ADHD overdiagnosed? Uh, this is a tricky question. We know that ADHD has been diagnosed with way increased frequency in the past 30 or so years. We also know that ADHD is diagnosed and psychostimulant medications are prescribed to the tune of like seven times more often in the United States than in the United Kingdom, Germany, and Australia. And to the tune of like 14 times more often in the United States than in Japan. Maybe this is because of diet, maybe because of parenting differences or other cultural differences, 
Maybe it's overdiagnosis in the U.S., or maybe it's a combination of these things. Uh, there's a popular book called Why French Kids Don't Have ADHD, if you're interested in the topic. Uh, we also know that if you see a male doctor, you're more likely to walk away with an ADHD diagnosis than if you see a female doctor. So that's ADHD, and I'm sure people have lots of questions on this one. Uh, send any questions to ctaylo41 at cbu.edu. I do have a mailbag question. And here it is. So I have a question about the Leroy mass hysteria case. Did they ever figure out what the cause of the conversion disorder was? You were talking about culture at the time, but never tied it into the Leroy case. So I was curious if that was what was going on. Is it some sort of cultural influence? And this is a great question. Uh, there were a few articles that came out in 2012 talking about what happened to the girls of Leroy. Uh, the most popular one was uh, probably written by the New York Times. Uh, the girls' twitching seemed to resolve at the end of the school year. Um, a lot of the girls and their parents didn't accept the conversion disorder diagnosis and started taking antibiotics. Uh, some of the girls accepted the conversion uh, disorder diagnosis and then found that that acceptance seemed to alleviate their symptoms. Uh, it's still sort of a medical or psychological mystery. And there was another case of possible mass psychogenic illness in Massachusetts the following year uh, where a group of mostly high school girls got months-long cases of the hiccups. Uh, anyways, that's a wrap on this episode. Keep sending me mailbag questions. Until next time, take care and stay well.